All right, so I think it's a good time to go ahead and, and get started. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and introduce the speakers. My name is Courtney Freer. I'm a visiting fellow at LSE's Middle East Center. I'm currently in Atlanta. I'm a provost postdoctoral fellow at Emory College here and uh, delighted to be here to talk about the quiet emergency experiences and understandings of climate change in Kuwait. Uh, so this webinar marks the launch of the report called The Quiet Emergency, which is an output from an LSE Kuwait program re research project entitled Sustaining Kuwait in Unsustainable Times, led by Dean Sharp. Um, I'll post a link to the report shortly in the chat box so you can um, have access to that. Um, so today we have um, four speakers, Dean, Abrar, and Kanwal will speak for about 30 minutes total, and then Samia will be a discussant and respond for about 10 minutes. Um, and we'll then move on to the Q&A session. And if you would like to ask a question or leave a comment, uh, please type your question into the Q&A box at the bottom of the screen, and then we'll address those questions to the speakers. Um, we also have English to Arabic live interpretation available, available. So if you would like to listen in in Arabic, click on the interpretation icon at the bottom of the Zoom thing. Um, and note that also the, the event will be recorded and will be live streamed on Facebook. If you want to tweet about the event, you can use the hashtag LSE Kuwait or LSE Middle East. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and introduce the speakers shortly for those of you who don't know them. Um, Dean Sharp is an LSE fellow in human geography in the Department of Geography and Environment at LSE. His research focuses on the political economy of urbanization in the Middle East. Dean was previously a postdoctoral fellow at the Aga Khan Program for Islamic Architecture at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He holds a PhD in Earth Environmental Sciences at the Graduate Center City University of New York, an MSc in International Politics from SOAS as well. Abrar al-Shamari is a PhD student at Princeton University's Near Eastern Studies Department. Her research explores sociopolitical issues relating to citizenship and inequality in the Arabian Peninsula. She graduated with an MA in Arab Studies from Georgetown University's Center for Contemporary Arab Studies, where she wrote her dissertation on the intersection of cultural production and politics in Kuwait. Kanwal Tariq Hamid is a PhD candidate at the University of Exeter and a member of the Gulf Studies Department and the European Center for Palestine Studies. She works on modern histories of the Gulf and her interests include critical histories, gender studies, the role for academia beyond the university and social justice. Samia Aldouaj is a senior environmental specialist with experience working for the World Bank and the UNDP. Her work has consisted mostly of operational projects and technical assistance programs related to environmental policy, management, government, solid waste management, marine issues, the sustainable development goals, and climate change. Samia is currently working for the Center for Environment, Fisheries, and Aquaculture Sciences in the UK and the British Embassy in, Ku in Kuwait. Um, on an environmental sustainability program with a focus on climate change awareness and outreach um, uh, related to the uh, COP26 in 2021, in November, 2021. Um, so thanks very much uh, to all of you for joining us. I'm gonna go ahead and, and let the speakers get started. Thank you. Great, thank you so much, Courtney. And thank you everyone for, for joining us for the launch of this report. Um, I'm going to start with just some thanks. These projects always accumulate a lot of debts and uh, they need to be repaid through, through thanks. And firstly, to thank the Middle East Center and specifically the Kuwait program for all of the support um, that has been provided in the 
conduct uh, the production of this report, uh, and specifically to Ian Sinclair, who throughout this this report has really provided uh, exceptional um, support, uh, including the hosting of this event, of which we're all very very grateful for. Um, I'd also like to just extend my thanks to the research team. This was a project that was started um, started running in earnest in the, in the midst of COVID and all of the challenges that that brings. We haven't actually been able to meet in person. Uh, I'm still waiting for that day and not to suggest that meeting in person doesn't matter, but I think it's also been remarkable um, the the teamwork that we've managed to uh, establish and, and connections and the, the report that I really hope all of you um, will uh, enjoy and, and see meaning in. Uh, and I'm really proud of, of what we've managed to do. So thank you, uh, Abra and Kanwal, who co-authored this report for me, uh, with me. And also to Batul Ashamari and Batul uh, Sadiwala, who are part of the second part of this project, which is uh, very much ongoing. Uh, around inequality and, and climate change. Um, you know, we're, we're a young research team, myself included. I'm a young scholar just starting out and I'm really proud of the extent to which we're at the forefront of pushing this question of climate change in a situated uh, way in engaging the populace of um, Kuwait and, and trying to bring these perspectives and understandings of the current state of, of play with this issue. and. Incidentally, this is also what I think our project really articulates in terms of the hope that exists. The, the really amazing younger generation, and I really encourage you all to also read the focus groups um, that we conducted, and Kanwal will also be touching upon further in her uh, talk as, as part of this, this launch. And, you know, there is some hope. To, to draw upon here. Climate change is recognized by government and society broadly in Kuwait. The, the time for debating science is, is over and even climate change denial for the most part is over. Climate change is accepted as a serious impact on the country. It's widely uh, recognized in terms of uh, being part of the everyday experience of daily life within the country. And we've seen this week, um, uh, yesterday indeed, the Kuwaiti Prime Minister reaffirm Kuwait's commitment to the Paris Agreement and to avoid increases in greenhouse gases. And Kuwait at last has updated its nationally determined commitment, this NDC, um, in October. But I don't want to overstate the case. And indeed, our report does uh, bring a lot of sobering perspectives around climate change and COP equally is also bringing a message uh, of quite amount of despair, to be quite frank. We are in a climate emergency and the message from COP26, even from you know quite high level officials that aren't ones for usually uh, sounding alarm bells are saying that time is running out and urgent action is required now. In 2020, greenhouse gases reached new heights globally and indeed, as our report outlines, Kuwait is at the forefront of many of the impacts of climate change. And indeed, the impetus for me creating the very proposal for this project was the record-breaking temperatures that Kuwait has experienced. And you know, these temperatures, of course, have generated a lot of international headlines, uh, but it was my perspective that 
most of the reporting that went on around those record breaking temperatures did not actually engage the inhabitants of Kuwait um, themselves. So that was the starting impetus for this project and how I sought to form it. And I was immensely grateful that Kanwal agreed to join me on this report and then equally in turn uh, put me in touch with Abra and we brought together this amazing core team that that um, I think is just built and built and indeed I hope um, as I said before that you'll really be able to see the, the fruits of our our labor in this report. So the central question being how were Kuwaitis experiencing and understanding the impact of climate change and as you can see from this title the quiet emergency it is one that I think is a very urgent impact on the country but one that is not talked about in depth. It is uh, uh, indeed a climate emergency, but one that is pretty much quietly uh, understood and debated. Um, now, as this project has got away, we've also been thinking, okay, how can we create some noise and, and create more movement um, and, and generate more urgency around this? So we also, uh, along with the report today, launching this website, that is uh, an ongoing um, portal of, of trying to communicate the state of play in terms of climate change in Kuwait. Um, and the not only the results from this research, but we hope to continue to make this a portal in which uh, all the different uh, information around climate change in Kuwait is uh, to be communicated and under, understood. Um, now, our research in particular consisted of over 35 interviews, three focus groups, media and uh, scholarly literature review, um, and specifically the analysis of the 2020 parliamentary elections in terms of how environmental and climate change issues were addressed. And Abra will be talking after me in more detail on the results of that piece of research. The message for this report is that the profound impact of climate change, although widely experienced, is not well understood in Kuwait. But the resources and technical capacity to address it are widely available and easily accessible, but there is not the political and social will to undertake the necessary reductions and actions to successfully and seriously address climate change. In our high level policy focus group, it was made very clear to us by the experts gathered that the government is not taking climate change seriously and that among society more broadly, it is viewed as a luxury or Western issue. And indeed, if you see many of the NGOs that are active on environmental issues in Kuwait, climate change is rarely touched upon even though it intersects with many of the issues that they are focused upon. Climate change is a climate, is a quiet emergency in Kuwait. And this is, as I said, powerfully articulated in the 2020 parliamentary elections that Abra will now uh, go through in more detail, but there are signs of hope and the generational divide that we noted uh, and was articulated in the two focus groups that we did, one in English and one in Arabic, with Kuwaiti youth, 
really does show the extent in which they, this younger generation are able to articulate uh, their concern with, with climate change and what they see should be done about it. And Kanwal will go through this in, in more detail in her section. And that to finally move uh, to, to conclude is just to say that, you know, this really is a uh, report really is a first step in terms of research on climate change. I, I think um, it's not a stretch to say that this is amongst the first um, situated, among the first situated accounts in terms of trying to understand how society within Kuwait and the GCC more broadly uh, is addressing the issue of climate change. And there is an immense amount of work to be done. Um, and equally, our next step in terms of really trying to tackle inequality and climate change and the impact of climate change on the most vulnerable, again, I think is going to be very much at the forefront of, of the research and, and too much uh, alone in breaking that ground. And Kanwar, again, will just expand a bit more on the research that we're doing um, around that. So on that note, I'll pass to Abra to go into more detail around the parliamentary elections and climate change and environmental impacts. Thank you very much, Dean. Um, so as Dean mentioned, a large portion of our research that we carried out was based on the parliamentary elections that took place in December 2020. The reason we did this was out of a desire for us to understand the subject of climate change in Kuwait from the viewpoint of lawmakers um, through the legislative branch and how they address this subject in their political discourse in particular. So we ended up carrying out an in-depth examination of the December 2020 National Assembly elections in Kuwait. Luckily for us, a call for elections took place in the early stages of our research. And what we ended up doing was we examined campaign posters. Uh, we also looked at social media posts and events. Uh, in light of the COVID-19 restrictions, the majority of campaigning actually ended up taking place online, um, which made it readily available for us to access. We also carried out a media analysis of both mainstream and social media, and we did interviews with parliamentary candidates and elected MPs, meaning that we interviewed uh, candidates we identified who were voted into parliament, as well as those who participated in the election but were not voted into parliament. This election was a particularly important election as it marked the first national assembly to take place since His Highness Sheikh Nawaf al-Ahmed al-Sabah assumed his role as Emir of the country, marking what many described as the beginning of a new era. The goal of this particular <clears throat> examination was for us to observe and analyze the extent to which environmental concerns and climate change were raised in the 2020 parliamentary elections. Overall, our analysis showed that climate change was not a political priority in any of the parliamentary campaigns which we observed. Instead, there was more of a focus on other um, political and economic matters deemed to be more pressing. These themes were primarily revolved around economic diversification, subsidies and taxes, reforming the electoral law, the question of freedom of speech, at putting an end to corruption and gender equality. These were primarily the issues that dominated campaign headlines, notably with the absence of environmental issues and the subject of climate change. There was a total of 326 candidates who ran across five districts in Kuwait, and we were able to identify a total of five 
who alluded to environmental issues, even though for most of them, they alluded to them quite vaguely. Only one out of the five explicitly addressed and named the concern of climate change. So we ended up having interviews with the five who we identified. In the interviews that we carried out with the candidates we identified, there was a general agreement that the subject of uh, climate change or the environment was not a hot topic per se, or a subject that voters found to be important or had substantial knowledge of to begin with. One candidate who we interviewed, uh, Sheikh Al-Jassim, who ran in the third district, for example, said that despite the fact that she personally considered the subject of climate change to be important to her, she did not bring it up in her campaign because she perceived a lack of environmental awareness in Kuwait and believed that people were more invested in issues relating to health, employment, and education. Another parliamentary candidate we spoke with, Tariq al who ran in the second district, also argued that conversations about environmental issues might take place in what he described as intellectual households, but not elsewhere. This seemed to be a recurring sentiment. Um, Hamad al-Ansari, who ran in the second district, also stated that Kuwaiti society was not engaged with environmental concerns and that it is a niche topic. He shared one statement with us that was particularly interesting, where he said, quote, I could go to a duania and ask, who do you, what do you think about global warming? And they would say, who cares about the polar bear? Voters show no interest in the environment, end quote. With the exception of Ali Al-Khalid, who ran in the second district and specifically listed environmental issues on her campaign poster, none of the other 325 candidates in the 2020 parliamentary elections listed climate change or environmental issues as an, an electoral priority. The question of oil in particular was a recurring theme throughout the 2020 election. Kuwait remains heavily reliant on oil as its primary source of national revenue. But when the question of oil was brought up, it was firmly discussed within this framework of economic diversification and economic sustainability. So not in, in relation to carbon emissions and climate change. There was also a shared perception among the parliamentary candidates who we spoke with that most Kuwaitis viewed climate change as a long-term issue, meaning that it's something that could potentially impact Kuwait in 50 years time in the distant future, rather than it being something that's already taking a toll on and, and impacting people's daily lives as our research has shown. Um, and that other issues such as putting an end to corruption and finding solutions to the debt crisis are viewed as more pressing political matters and therefore warrant the attention of lawmakers more so than environmental challenges or the issue of climate change. Thinking of the larger um, political picture, Kuwait has certainly been experiencing a severe political deadlock for almost the past decade. Um, environmental specialist Samir Daij, who's with us here today, described the political deadlock as being something that, quote, just sucks the oxygen out of the air. Parliament and corruption are what people think about all the time, end quote. And I think this is a really powerful way of um, describing it, that this political deadlock is permeating into other aspects of um, the sort of national priorities and challenges that the country is experiencing and prevents people from being able to address them. Tariq al-Dwaysan echoed this sentiment and said that because of these pressing economic and corruption related concerns, environmental issues end up taking a backseat of sorts. 
it should definitely be pointed out that the sorts of issues that are currently be, uh, dominating the political discourse should not be viewed as distinct from the challenge of climate change. Indeed, many of them are actually connected, although they're not being addressed as such at the moment. Many of the parliamentary candidates we identified and interviewed noted that the issue of the environment and climate change was brought up during their respective campaigns by the younger generation, with some even specifically saying that it had actually been their own children who had drawn their attention to the importance of environmental concerns. However, this does mean that these individuals who pointed this out at the moment are too young to vote since the voting age in Kuwait is 21 years old. However, in the future, um, in the near future, uh, they would be able to have the right to vote and would have a say in these sorts of matters. So this is something to observe. This led to some of the candidates concluding that the younger generation is more conscious of environmental concerns and is more invested in the subject of climate change and prompted us as a research team to carry out two focus groups with middle school and high school students in Kuwait. On the subject of the themes that came out of the election, um, one notable theme that I think is important to keep in mind uh, that comes up in almost every election in Kuwait is the status of Kuwait's Bidun or stateless community. Um, and it's often framed as a human rights issue or a political and national security concern, depending on whether the parliamentary candidate is for or against this community. Um, it's never, however, addressed in the context of how Kuwait state this community is disproportionately impacted by the effects of climate change, given the outdoor nature of, the many, of, of many of their daily means of livelihood, whether as street vendors or otherwise. This question of the disproportionate impact of climate change on Kuwait's stateless community is part of ongoing research that I'm currently conducting with Betul Shemmeri, my colleague, um, and uh, uh, Kanwal will further expand on the subject of inequality and climate change, which as uh, Dean mentioned is um, still underway and uh, worth examining. But first, Kanwal is going to touch upon the earlier mentioned generational divide, which we um, picked up on in our conversations with these parliamentary candidates. Great, thank you. Thank you both. Um, and thank you to everyone who's working to run this, including our translator. Um, so I'd start out by saying that I think we can also think about this generational divide as the response of the social group, which is most likely to face the greatest impacts of climate change, although with variables within this group. Um, it should be said that in Kuwait, as elsewhere, youth and students through organized political communities and action have historically been a driving force in social and political change. So in spite of the generational divide, there is also a sense that the experience of climate change is something which is felt by all, and that experiential knowledge is transferred from one generation to the next. As an example, I think of one of the participants in our research who described a conversation with her auntie in which she had asked her aunt how it was possible that people in Kuwait prior to independence used to sleep on rooftops, to which her aunt responded that the weather in Kuwait was not as hot in the past as it, was now, as it is now, and that the current high temperatures are the result of global warming. So 
how we carried out our engagements with uh, youth in Kuwait was through ve two very rich focus group sessions, one held in Arabic and one in English. And we had 19 students, high school students from Kuwait in Kuwait participating between the ages of 14 and 17. And those who joined us were enrolled in both private and public schools and Kuwaiti and non-Kuwaitis. So across the board, in uh, among all the youth participants, and this is male and female, Kuwaiti and non-Kuwaiti from both public and private schools, um, as I mentioned, the, they all concurred that climate change had a more rapid and immediate effect on their lives as compared with the lives of their parents, and that they also felt that previous generations did not take the issue as seriously as they did. When they were describing their experiences of climate change, they talked about, and this echoes the plethora of scientific work that is, has been produced in Kuwait. And I saw some of the names of the people whose work we use for our own research in the audience, um, saying that climate change brought with it heavier rains, more frequent rains that damaged infrastructure, also increased heat, and then more regular and severe dust storms. And these young people that we spoke to linked the, the dust storms to health issues that they saw among their peers such as the cases of asthma. Then almost all of the participants in these youth focus groups, they emphasized that their exposure to social, uh, social media was an essential source of knowledge about climate change. And this was also a means through which they engaged with efforts to tackle climate change. They shared with us this sense of dissatisfaction with what they described as a lack of information available through their school curriculum but also through local media and in Arabic language in general. After we were done, I remember Dean saying to us that it's almost as if the Swedish youth activist Greta Thunberg and the American actor Leonardo DiCaprio have been more effective at raising alarm about climate change among the youth we spoke to than most official and educational sources have. The majority of public schools uh, participants said to us that their lived experience and exposure to social media content were the primary sources for learning about climate change. And the students were critical, as I said, of their school curriculums, which they said provided a kind of repeat of out-of-date teaching on contemporary climate or environmental issues. Um, on the other hand, a number of private school students did say to us that they also engaged with the issue through after-school clubs and learned about climate change through events at school, such as Earth Day. So, Thinking now about what I'm going to say alongside what Abra shared about the election's priorities, the youth that we spoke with said that for them, these are priorities and they are gender equality and gender-based violence in Kuwait, statelessness and economic corruption, along with climate change. They consider them to be priority social and political issues. When talking about tackling it, they talked about a mix of environmental and climate-related approaches, which included things like limiting water and electricity use, recycling, but also participating in beach cleanups, adopting a vegan diet, or using public transport. Overall, almost all of them agreed that there was a need for great, greater awareness in order to develop a kind of community-based response, and that older generations needed to listen to and take more seriously the concerns of them as a future generation. Um, I'll finish by talking about uh, what Abrar mentioned at the end of her part, which is how we hope to extend um, our work. And one of the avenues that we hope to approach is the interplay between social inequality and the experience of climate change, which we came across in our research. 
initially this we came across this through interviews with some very brilliant people who work on the ground in community and campaigning organizations, some of whom are also attending today. Um, and as we expand the strand of research, as Abrar mentioned, uh, Batula Shimmeri and Batul Sadliwala brought, joined our team and they brought with us their experiences in both community work and journalism. And together with Abrar, they've carried out over 25 in-depth semi-structured interviews in Kuwait to develop our work around the questions of social inequality and the experiences of climate change. So from our research, class and nationality were the key variables that we could identify as affecting vulnerability to climate change. And this is through class and nationalities shaping of things such as migration patterns, employment, housing, and transportation use in Kuwait. So as well as generation, we can say that this is the other divide that we could map out regarding climate change in Kuwait. Um, migrant workers and members of the Bedouin community bear the brunt of weather extremes through their work in the outdoors. And this includes work in construction, as delivery drivers, as street vendors, and in agricultural work. And we should note that this work is also gendered. They also experience the effects of climate change in their housing, which is often poorly insulated from dust or lacking air conditioning and then also through transport method, methods that they rely on, which will uh, involve using bus stops that are not adequately sheltered. So I would just finish by saying that in this strand of our research, there is a palpable sense that the climate emergency is less quiet. And thank you. Uh, thank you, um, Abrar. Uh, thank you, Kaniwa. Uh, um, thank you, Dean, for, for your um, uh, insights into this report. Um, I'm just here to kind of give, give the audience my impressions as somebody who's been uh, working in this field for quite some time. Um, and um, I think the, the report confirmed some of my um, anecdotal evidence, which is primarily that it is a big generational gap. I mean, I see it uh, every day through some of the initiatives I'm involved in and just, uh, just through talking to people. Um, and what, what, what I found interesting was as well, there's always this impression that the um, uh, sort of climate change is an issue matters mostly to uh, the, the youth in, in international schools. What I found insightful in this report was that it's actually covered um, both segments, international schools and, and the, um, the, the state schools. Um, I would just like to add, I mean, um, you know, it's timely that we had this, what the, this workshop is, is today because, um, you know, we've talked about the impacts of climate change on Kuwait from a different, different perspective in terms of oil exports, sort of health impacts and so on. But today, the... Um, um, the British uh, Chancellor announced that um, you know the the financial uh, London is going to be a net zero financial center. That's going to impact Kuwaiti companies now. That's going to impact the private sector in Kuwait. That's going to impact banking. It's going to impact investment. And I'm thinking that if this, I, I, my impression is that after this COP, if the health impacts and the call of the youth and the and the socioeconomic impacts didn't um, get traction with the 
um, uh, sort of the adults in, in society, I think the financial impacts will. <laughs> because once uh, query, query companies are blacklisted because they invest in uh, fossil fuels or something uh, of that nature, um, we can expect uh, this conversation to um, uh, take uh, precedence in, in, the, in the media. And I noticed today as well that I tried to, the Al-Qabas is, is one of the, um, um, it's, it's like the, in my impression, it's like one of the um, most read newspapers and their coverage of, of uh, the prime minister's speech yesterday was, was really minimal. Um, so, and I didn't see as well any, any, any discussions maybe on social media, online or anything about what, what does, what are these targets? Uh, how does Kuwait want to achieve this, this target? And, and somebody in the, in the chat box mentioned that the target is small. Yes, I completely agree. The target is very small. And it's already, it was already part of the plan is for switching from uh, fuel, uh, fossil fuel, uh, switch, uh, sorry, switching from crude oil to um, uh, natural gas to power, power stations and desalination plants. So this is nothing really new. Um, and also, um, you know, we, 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 we seem to be also relying on technology as a solution, technology that's not, that hasn't been proven yet. Um, so, um, but, but back to, um, which, which, which to me indicates this lack of serious engagement with the, with the leadership in Kuwait on this issue. Um, um, as I mentioned again and again, every COP, a new uh, report comes out, a new NDC comes out, but after COP, uh, does this trickle down to society? Do, do people understand what it means? Do people understand, let's say, if there's any reforms in energy subsidy, that's because of uh, emission reduction? No, they don't. Do these conversations have happen, the, the discussions happen in parliament where we, we link, we link some of some of the um, aspects of the welfare state with, with emissions. No, we don't. And I think um, th this is where the disconnect is. The, uh, the climate change is not about polar bears, but, but as your report mentioned, yes, and, and duanias and whatever, people really think this is a luxury, even though we all feel it every summer, the temperature gets hotter and hotter for longer periods of time, and the infrastructure is not able to handle it. The, the, you know, the, um, luckily this year we haven't had the power outages, but a few years ago there was quite, they were quite uh, common. Um, and, 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 and let me add, power outages common in areas where, the, you know, there are less affluent. So also, you know, and so it just kind of um, emphasizes what you, what you mentioned, that the people who are feeling the impacts um, of climate change are not necessarily the ones who are leading the discussions in media, um, in, um, in parliament and, and so on. Um, and I think, you know, maybe our message as, as activists or as experts or, or practitioners in this field is to, is to um, sort of um, demystify this term, the climate change. And, um, you know, uh, maybe make it more tangible and understandable to the average person of what it means. And as I mentioned again, that, um, you know, when, when there's an extreme weather um, uh, event, people talk about climate change. And then as soon as everything goes back to normal, uh, the conversation stops. 
Or the other thing they think is that, no, th th these pollutants are from big industrial countries. We in Kuwait, the, we, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. Um, but if, 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 if people are not um, kind of appreciating what mitigation involves, then we need to also start adapting to it. And this, this involves just thinking about how we plan our cities, how we uh, uh, plan our homes, how we build our homes and so on to be uh, more sustainable and taking into uh, uh, consideration climate risk assessment. Um, I mean, I can go on and I promise the team that I will not go on for, for longer than 10 minutes, but I'm happy to take any uh, uh, questions. But I would like to really thank everybody for this really, really um, concise and informative report. And it kind of confirms what we all, what we, the impression that most of us who are active in this field have had. Uh, thank you. Great, thank you all so much. It's fascinating. And we have a lot of questions um, coming in, uh, some of which you've, you've touched on, but I'm gonna start with the, the first one. Um, it says, can the panel touch on two areas? One, putting health at the center of climate change in the Gulf and Kuwait um, more specifically, and two, uh, which Samia mentioned, the embarrassing promise of cutting only 7.4% of emissions by 2035 in Kuwait's latest NDC. Um, and I wonder, I mean, does that, does that show a lack of political will? Is that, I mean, why, why is the target so low? Um, so I wonder if y'all could, who wants, whoever wants to start uh, jumping in on that question, those two questions really. Um, maybe, well, because I, I, can, I can answer this question because I was kind of involved in some of uh, the previous uh, discussions on NDCs. Um, you know, the, um, the, the way, so, so with the NDCs, like I said, I mean, what they have uh, proposed are things that have already been um, um, planned for. Um, uh, why, why, uh, I agree with the comment that it does show the kind of lack of engagement. Um, you know, our, our neighboring countries like uh, uh, UAE, etc., have set some ambitious targets, uh, UAE to reach net zero by 2050. Um, I, I, again, it's, it's, the, it's the mere fact that things were left probably to the last minute and what we've done is um, uh, basically um, looked at all aspects where we are. We are we're already planning on reducing our emissions, which is mostly in the power generation sector, and added it to the NDC. But it's I, I have I've, I've seen the NDCs. We haven't added anything new, um, and we have this target of 7.4 uh, percent by 2035, which were which was already in plan from pre you know from like just previous development plans. But we we it's still meager. Um, you know, we're not we haven't discussed cutting emissions from key sectors like uh, transport. Um, um, you know, um, um, improving infrastructure. Um, you know, refineries, etc. We've done some gas flaring, but still, I don't think it's uh, sufficient. Um, and on the on the other um, aspect of uh, um, considering it as a health issue, this is something that the EPA in Kuwait has done. And when they when they did the second national communication, they identified the the key risks to, of climate change to Kuwait as sea level rises or coastal zones, um, uh, you know, increased dust storm, whatever, and the main uh, impact, which is the health impact, and and specifically increase in respiratory diseases and and uh, heat strokes and uh, heat related conditions because so, so the country the, the 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 EPA recognizes this.
but uh, again, this is not being um, disseminated, I think, to the public. It's just, uh, it's an issue that comes up every COP um, and every time we have to submit a report, but um, it doesn't trickle down uh, to, to the public. Thank you. Yeah, and, uh, sorry, could you just before I wanted to add just three, three things to that. I mean, the first thing is that, you know, the intersectional nature of many of the impacts of climate change. So on health, on you know many of the issues that we've outlined in the report and to stress uh, and put that intersection up front and to, to say the second point is that you know this report I hope is going to be a real uh, first step in bringing this knowledge in terms of how these intersections exist to the public in a, a more available and accessible way and to highlight the gap that exists between um, the academic community and the, the scientists um, and the, what gets filtered down to the public. And then thirdly, just to stress the point that why is the NDCs, why is there no ambition among the government? Is that I think also that's articulated very clearly in our report, there is absolutely no public pressure on the government to do anything about this issue. And just to link up to what Samia was saying, and, and also the urgency in which we want to stress that if, you know, finance suddenly gets a good jerk, you know, and the, the strings do get pulled and creators really do have to radically transform uh, the way in which they live their lives uh, economically, as well as all the other aspects that we touch upon. You know, we're saying very clearly here that they're not prepared. Um, there is no broader conversation going on and how all of these things link up and the sudden cuts that could happen in the very immediate future and the urgency in which uh, exists to get a broader understanding uh, out there so that you know the the problem problem could be identified and then you know the second step of course is to attempt to address it Does anyone else want to comment on this? And there was a, a follow-up also in the chat box, basically asking if we think that regional initiatives um, that Samia mentioned, the more ambitious targets like UAE net zero by 2050 will push Kuwait to a more progressive position. I mean, do you think there's any possibility of that or it's just not a political priority? Um, I think that this question is um, relevant to uh, what uh, Dean just mentioned about the fact that we're not seeing any public pressure from Kuwaitis on the government to do anything about this issue. Um, when we're comparing Kuwait's case, I think, to other examples in the region, the role of its political system is something that we really can't undermine here. Um, uh, Decision-making in Kuwait is very much a cooperative relationship in the sense that it's both the executive and legislative branch. Um, that decide what direction the country is heading in. When we are talking about the legislative branch, that very much does depend um, on their voters' bases. And what we've seen is that the voters' bases are not um, concerned about this particular issue, are not putting pressure on their lawmakers, and the lawmakers, therefore, are not the ones um, advocating for this uh, within parliaments. And th there's a number of reasons why uh, this may be the case. Um, I think as our research has, has shown um, it's primarily uh, non-Kuwaitis who are uh, the ones experiencing the effects of climate change much more 
tangibly. So migrant workers um, and Kuwait stateless community are really feeling this impact um, much more powerfully. Um, and uh, these are communities who don't have political representation. Um, so it's, it's a matter of what will um, prompt Kuwaiti voters to decide to exert that sort of pressure on um, their lawmakers. Uh, as, as I said, this is a key component here that we must take into consideration when comparing Kuwait with other examples in the region. That's an important point. It's a very different, very particular system in Kuwait, um, especially compared to its neighbors. Um, so then there are a couple other questions. Um, so one is, is about you know, the language. Why not widen the climate change discourse to the more inclusive anthropogenic forcing, which includes biodiversity, toxic waste, forever chemicals, et cetera, which are also significant in Kuwait. And that could possibly um, you know, diminish this, this issue of, of people thinking climate change just has to do with polar bears, I suppose. Um, and secondly, the, another question from the same gentleman says, is there any awareness in Kuwait of the anthropogenic effects of the US military presence in the country over the last decades and their toxic waste? Um, so I'm not sure who wants to take that, those questions. Kamal, yeah, Kamal, yeah. Dean, you also look like you're about to speak, so join me or... Um follow on. Um, I just wanted to say that I think the sense that I, I get is um, that we took a very grounded approach to finding out. I mean, people in Kuwait are not discussing anthropogenic forcing, right? Um, but there is some sense of awareness and engagement with this idea of climate change. And what we set out to do is get a sense of what are Kuwait people in Kuwait or Kuwaitis, including all people in Kuwait, uh, feeling in relation to climate change and how do they discuss it? Um, and not to say that, that the, the framing that you're offering is not the way that we should think about it because I think as all of the, both the questions and the segments of our talk have alluded to is that it is a very intersectional issue that is also political, it is environment, environmental, it's about health, it's about economy. So there definitely needs to be a very holistic way of tackling it. Um, and then just to comment on the military, um, yeah, there's, I think, a couple of other things in terms of um, the Anthropocene in Kuwait is that, uh, and it came up in our youth group when they talked about the kind of uh, health-related uh, environmental issues, and they talked about the, the burning of the oil wells after the invasion of Kuwait, um, not the, the U.S. military presence, but I think there is a sense or some work to be done in developing that study. Um, and yeah, maybe Dean, if you want to add something to that. I, I mean, I think you answered uh, expertly that just to to maybe, yeah, re-emphasize that, that sort of research in terms of, uh, we can't answer that question in terms of the awareness around the US military presence because it wasn't part of this research project, but um, it, I would certainly invite anyone to do that, that work. It sounds very important um, to do uh, and uh, I'm sure would, um, get some interesting results and exactly what Kamal was saying I was really uh, hugely impressed by the that historical awareness uh, within the youth focus groups uh, and the, the military and uh, militarized legacies of uh, the environmental impact that uh, Kuwait has experienced and and linking that to the climate change I mean that broader intersectional approach it, it was just so yeah hugely impressive and again just to encourage you to read indeed the, the youth focus group um, that, that's available on our project page. 
Great, thank you. And then there's another question um, to Dean and Conwell asking about the methodology you used um, for the focus groups and how you translated the results. So I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit more about that. I know it's on the website, but um, just to, to give a sense of how this worked. Dean, go for it. Sure. Well, I mean, maybe uh, Abra can elaborate um, a bit in terms of, you know, the snowballing method that we used to solicit the youth focus group and just to also add that, you know, um, before handing over to Abra, that um, in terms of how we also framed the focus group was very much a product of the initial research that we did in which people stressing that there existed this generational divide. So then our feeling that, well, we then need to talk to this younger generation rather than uh, about them, firstly. And secondly, that there was a assumption that those within private schools were engaged and active on this subject and those in public uh, were not. And to say that uh, that clearly was not of these two focus groups. I mean, it was a select bunch and, and Abra will, will go into that, but to say that that uh, division did, did not exist, um, although there was a clear difference in terms of an active engagement by the school um, in terms of the private, there, there was some touching upon climate change and, and in the state schools there, there certainly wasn't. Um, but yeah, Abra. Thanks Dean, um, and thank you to the person who asked this question. Um, so as, as I described earlier um, in this event, uh, what prompted us to decide to reach out to uh, young people in Kuwait and see what their understanding of climate change is and how important it is in their own view um, is, are the conversations that we were having with parliamentary candidates who were saying that um, uh, voters who were eligible and old enough to vote were not bringing up this conversation with them, but people who were younger. Um, meaning teenagers were the ones raising this, this issue with them and that they perceived this generational um, divide. So this was the prompt, this was the reason um, that we decided to engage them. Um, we ended up reaching out to uh, teachers, we reached out to a number of um, employees in the public sector um, from our own uh, networks essentially to ask them if they um, could help us put out a call uh, to recruit uh, students in middle school and high school to participate in uh, this focus group that we were doing. Uh, we carried out one in English and another in Arabic. Uh, it was important for us that we would uh, make sure that we are inclusive of both public school as well as private school students. Um, we had uh, a, a, an almost even um, ratio of uh, young boys and young girls, and we also made sure to include both Kuwaiti and non-Kuwaiti students. Um, uh, there was a good age range as well. It was roughly between 13 to 17. Um, as Dean mentioned, we, we talk about all this in depth uh, in the report on the website. Um, but um, yeah, from the conversations that we had with, uh, the, with the youth, that was what gave us um, the insights that we were able to develop. So we um, found that social media played a really large role in their understanding of climate change. Um, they were very much conscious of the absence of the subject of climate change in both their school curriculums and in mainstream media um, and expressed this sort of frustration, especially with um, the public school students. One thing that was particularly interesting was that the public school students seemed to be uh, more aware of the role of policy 
um, in this issue. So they had a good understanding of how the political system works and the fact that this is an issue that's absent um, in political discourse as uh, we've laid out. I hope that answers uh, your question. Please uh, do let me know if you have any follow-up questions. Great. Um, and another question I think that Abrar has touched on is about the role of parliament. Do you think the elected parliament in Kuwait will have a concrete, realistic and significant impact on the advancement of the energy transition? And if so, how? And I guess another kind of follow on question to that for, for Samia is then, if not parliament, who, who would be the effective decision maker stakeholders in Kuwait when it comes to climate change or energy transition. So who, if not parliament, then then who would be the one to, to affect this change? I'll start with the bar and then go to, to Samia. Uh, thank you, Courtney. Um, so I think, again, with parliament, um, we can't re realistically uh, predict that members of parliament are going to step up um, and decide to advocate for this if the general public is not also pressuring uh, their representatives to do the same. So realistically speaking, I don't predict um, that the parliament is going to be playing an active role in this at any point in um, the near future. Um, the political deadlock that has very much characterized Kuwait's political scene for at least the past decade um, is still a major obstacle toward um, it, preventing uh, members of parliament and the general public um, from seeing solutions um, in sight to a lot of these sorts of issues. So unless we're able to um, find concrete ways of disseminating the, the exact conversation that we're having right now and the knowledge that we're producing to the general public um, and prompting the general public to then exert that pressure um, and insist on this as being a political priority, then I think realistically, this is not something that we can really see. Um, with that said, it will definitely be interesting to see how perhaps in the next four years, um, once the um, youth that we uh, spoke with are old enough to vote how that might change the political landscape. I think this is a generation that is um, very different, very unique, um, and that really can't be undermined in terms of what sort of things they're going to be demanding for their future. And Conwell, do you want to jump in before I go to Samia? Yeah, I think I just wanted to follow um, from Abra's answer with a question also related to parliament which is that Kuwait has such a vibrant political parliamentary life and um, has in the past had quite po um, powerful progressive opposition forces bringing issues onto the table and pressing for change. Um, that it was also, it's curious and notable outside of the election cycle also that among um, young and older kind of progress, the progressive trend in Kuwait that the, the climate and the environment, which as we've shown is like, a social issue, an economic issue, an environmental and a health issue. So very much in the public domain also hasn't been adopted. Um, so that's more of a question, but I'm just broadening out um, on the parliamentary cycle. Great, thank you, Samia. Do you want to come in? Uh, yeah, um, I think, um, you know, uh, in general, like you see with quite a lot of countries that are maybe with, with a sort of similar political uh, environment as Kuwait, we're not 100% democratic, I mean, you know, we have to be realistic about that. Um, this is driven by, um, you know, champions in government, right? You, you need your champion, you need a maybe more active EPA, you need, um, you know, there are key um, um, sort of um, uh, 
policymakers within the government that understand the severity of the issue. And I'm thinking even in the, in the um, Supreme Council for Planning and, and so on, and some key staff within Minister of Electricity. Uh, so these, these are people that can actually start pushing this agenda. But I'm also um, inclined to think as well that the private sector has a huge role. Um, as I mentioned again, I mean, you know, uh, this conversation about what it means for Kuwait once, once uh, uh, yeah, um, uh, you know, several financial institutes, about 450 financial institutions signed up today uh, to reach net zero uh, uh, by 2050. That, that you know, you, these financial institutions have um, uh, what you call activist investors. Uh, tomorrow, these activist investors will start to impact, uh, will look at uh, um, uh, investments from Kuwaitis, from Kuwaiti banks, from Kuwaiti uh, companies as, as um, uh, liable, uh, liable investments. So, um, you know, uh, the, you have international pressure from the financial institutions. You have uh, the private sector can play a huge role by promoting sustainability. And a lot of you find a lot of a lot of companies that are, have a more global global reach in Kuwait are being forced to adopt more sustainable uh, practices because of um, where they operate. So um, I think uh, my colleague Brett Lyons mentioned agility is one of them. Um, and then you know we have even companies in Kuwait that are considered. Uh, um, you know, highly unsustainable are beginning to adopt more sustainable practices. And this will trickle down to, to, to society. So, you, you know, with, with, with any environmental kind of issue, you have, you have um, uh, three factors. You have the public, you have the private sector, and you have the government. And it's just a degree of which, of, of when, whichever country you're in, it's a degree of each part of this, this, uh, Triangle, you know who who plays a more active role. Um, I I I mean um, just through conversations with the former head of Kuwait Investment Authority, he was already aware that you know um, we have to introduce some serious changes within the financial sector in Kuwait, improve what they call an environment, social governance reporting uh, uh, for 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 our institutions to be um, competitive globally. Um, there's been, there's been uh, com uh, um, discussions with the, uh, uh, the Kuwait Stock Exchange uh, to start adopting the UN guidelines for sustainable investing. So, you know, it's, um, if parliament is not moving, if the public is not uh, beginning to be aware, um, and, I, and I really question that because like everybody said, it's just a generational gap. And let's not forget most, most, of, most Kuwaitis are under the age of 30, if I'm not mistaken. So this is something that we have to also consider. But also, you know, you cannot now, you cannot escape climate change. I just had a conversation a few days ago with a, a member of the of international, um, uh, Transparency International, a Kuwaiti member, Who's, who called me specifically to say, you know, we've been pressured now by our colleagues in, in the international NGO arena to talk about how we can hold our companies um, 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 accountable in terms of environmental justice. Uh, you know, this is a conversation that I would have never had a year ago. Um, so, I mean, the tide is, 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 is changing, it's shifting. And I think the private sector has a strong role to play. And we, the champions within government in every country, and I've, I've worked in international development now for a while, and you'll always find in, uh, um, you go to, um, you know, particularly Algeria, for example, if the Minister of Environment champions some of these issues, 
you will see environmental projects and environmental agenda take center stage in national development planning. And, you know, and, um, and these are the, the, the people that need to be supported um, in, 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 in any way possible. Um, and then parliament will also respond to public pressure. But um, we cannot live in isolation from what's happening around the world, you know? I mean, uh, uh, sooner or later, or, or, or we're gonna be left behind. And, we've, we've, and Kuwait's already been left behind in a lot of other aspects, but this one I think is pretty a really risky uh, path to take uh, because it, it will affect a global reputation. And, and we're not China, we don't have some power to wield globally. So we need to, I think, get on the green, uh, uh, get on the green path as soon as possible before we become a blacklisted or a pariah state. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Dean, did you have anything to add on this? Just to, just to stress maybe about the EPA specifically, you know, I would say to go to our report to see what high-level policy uh, and political experts told us. Uh, I won't go over it now, but just to be clear that the EPA is not at the forefront of the climate change agenda. And, um, you know, the, the experts that, to stress, you know, these are technical experts. These are people working directly with government. These are not activists or, uh, you know, coming from, from a, a radical agenda or, or anything like that, you know, these, are people that are working um, in the, the the government mechanism and, and machinery themselves, and and they're quite clear about the fact that the EPA is not uh, working on this issue in a, in a serious and directed way. Great. Um, there's a couple of questions about kind of the most vulnerable groups of people in Kuwait affected by climate change, which you've mentioned a little bit, and why they're why groups like migrant workers and the Bedouin population are more vulnerable. Um, to the impact of climate change. You've touched on that. And there was another question about, um, so given that min, the many uh, social inequalities exist, that exist in Kuwait and that the most vulnerable communities are usually migrant workers and Bedouin community who are not uh, protected by the government as citizens, how then can we ensure that any environmental or climate change solutions in the future will include them and their concerns um, as well? Which is a, a tricky question given that they you know, can't vote. Um, so I wonder who wants to, to start off with that, with the, the idea of the most protecting the most vulnerable um, in Kuwait from climate change. Uh, I will just start by also saying that, you know, firstly to say that this is ongoing research and we're at the primary stage in terms of this inequality aspect. But I, I did wanna say that from our initial research that we've done on this, you know, I think um, at, at least to, from my perspective and, and maybe the, the rest of the team can add on to this but it was also a surprise in that the people that we also engaged highlighted to us that rural communities in particular and farmers really need more attention in terms of the impact of climate change and we are as I say actively um, collecting uh, data researching that that angle and that it isn't only um, migrant workers in um, urban areas that there are some excellent NGOs uh, within Kuwait that are highlighting uh, and working with those, those communities. And to say that there's a lot of communities that are even more vulnerable and hidden to a certain extent than uh, arguably 
uh, migrant communities in the Burdun that we have to also be attentive to, and, and we certainly will be in our report. And having said that, you know, that is also a, a thrust of the research that we're doing is to, again, illuminate the, the issues in the communities and to clearly center that ground. Because I would say in terms of the solutions, that is a bit beyond our, our purview, but we really hope to contribute and direct the discussion that goes on around how indeed to address the, the problem that I hope we're helping identify. And Conwell, did you want to come in on this? Yes, please. Um, I just wanted to add that, uh, well, a couple of things. I was reading something today of, uh, about COVID-19 and it was saying, and I'm going to read from it, that the production of group differentiated vulnerability to premature death is a constant of the global economic political system that we're currently within. So I think that um, both... I mean, I think it's reflective of what we found in regards to climate change, even though they were speaking about uh, a kind of analysis of the impact of COVID, which is that this kind of increased vulnerability to premature death. And there's been work done, um, Barak Al-Ahmed, who's been asking some questions in the chat about heat stress, for example, and the impact on specifically male migrant workers who work in the outdoors. Um, and all of that, just to say that, I feel like it, in order to think about solutions, one, it requires a, uh, an approach that kind of accounts for the fact of that certain conditions uh, produce the condition of premature death for certain more vulnerable groups. But also just to point that in so much of the work that we did um, was based on uh, interviewing people who are already trying to tackle this in Kuwait. And these are the community-based organizations that are all listed in the, um, who are named in the report and some of the members of which are here today, as well as the kind of scientific community. There's a lot of, I mean, there is a later question in the chat about curriculum, which I'm also very curious about because we met with people who are based at Kuwait University. We referred to reports that are being produced uh, within Kuwait by Kisser, by KFAS. Um, and the information is there and the work is being produced in Kuwait about all these realities. And likewise, among community organizations within Kuwait, there is work being done to try and press for the protection of the most vulnerable um, in Kuwaiti society. So yeah, I would just follow on from what Dean said to point to say that um, so a lot of this work is already being approached and tackled uh, on the ground to Kuwait. And I think we can learn a lot from them rather than us trying to, um, as researchers, offer the solutions. Um, I would like to add something really quick though, um, that I think when we are um, considering this reality of uh, both migrant workers and the stateless community being more, more vulnerable um, to the impact of climate change. It is um, it, as, as a direct result of the fact that they are already um, in living and working conditions that are inappropriate. Um, and this is um, a question that a lot of activists and NGOs are already working on, although um, as mentioned earlier, um, normally not in the context of um, climate change. So I think in thinking about solutions moving forward, it is important to recognize that whatever um, solutions do arise um, have to also require um, a, a change, a, a radical change in the sorts of living and working conditions um, that these communities are um, enduring at the moment. It's an important point. Um, and uh, there's a couple of other questions related to kind of in what ways is climate change experienced in Kuwait? Is it mostly high temperatures and, and drought? 
um, and do people perceive it as related to uh, climate? I remember when I was in quite a few years ago, the massive floods that took place. I don't know if that's, I mean, that raised the conversation and then it kind of disappeared again. And then, uh, so so how is climate change experienced in Kuwait? And also another kind of related question is, you know, what regulations are like anti-pollution kind of regulations are currently put in place and and applied? So I don't know who wants to come in first on, on either of those questions. Yeah, Samia, go ahead. Uh, so uh, mostly for the way climate change is experienced in Kuwait is mostly um, through ex extreme heat. Uh, that that's the first thing. Uh, um, so uh, on average, you know, if you look at uh, um, uh, meteorological data, let's say you know, if you, tw twenty years ago, you would have maybe one week of, of temperature being over fifty Celsius, or two weeks uh, towards the end of July, early August. Now we're beginning to see that. Uh, throughout the summer. I mean, this year in, on Ju in early June, the temperature went up to 53, which is unheard of. Um, and then also um, the hottest temperature in the world was recorded in Kuwait in 2016 at uh, 54.6, I think. Um, so the first, uh, first um, uh, thing that would uh, strike you would be the extreme heat. Then you have um, the, because of uh, reduced rainfall in, in neighboring countries as well, including Syria and Iraq, um, and which is where most of our dust comes from. Um, uh, so uh, there, there's definitely increased dust storms due to the fact that there's not enough rainfall in, in neighboring countries. Um, and, then, and then you have the, 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 this, these deluges of rain. Um, uh, flash floods and so on. I mean, you remember, yeah, you're, you're exactly right about in 2018, um, the country, it was raining every day for uh, uh, two weeks and we're talking you know, almost tropical level uh, rainfall. Um, however, on the other side, there's very little rainfall at the same time. So if you, you have one week of heavy rain and then nothing for the entire winter. And and again, meteorological data support this, supports this, but anyone who is, maybe my age or a little younger, I don't know, or older, will uh, remember that it rained a bit more frequently when we were children. Um, and, and, and it was colder in winter. So we're not even getting uh, a lot of cold, uh, cold, like, uh, um, cold temperatures anymore. Um, so that's, that's what we're feeling now. Um, the projections are um, that obviously sea level rise is going to be a big thing, a, a big, big issue. Um, there are there is some anecdotal evidence now from people who live by the by by the beach. They would tell you that they they you know um, uh, they feel like especially if there's a storm surge or whatever they can see that there's more water getting into their uh, um, houses and so on. However, the projections are that you know by 2050, if if if, if we continue business as usual globally. Um, you know, a part of uh, Bobian Island will be inundated, and uh, key um, uh, key areas in Kuwait City, and this is the EPA's uh, assessment. So, where the hospitals are, they will be um, inundated. Uh, so, where where the Shaiba, um, um, where the uh, refineries are, they will be inundated. Khiran. So, so sea level rise is what we expect. You don't see it now. But in the future, along with extreme heat, sea level rise is, is the other big, uh, big threat uh, facing Kuwait uh, uh, from climate change. And then, you know, and then increased salinity in the oceans and uh, 
which that affects as well, the um, an increased heat affects the marine ecosystem uh, and so on. Um, so that's that's the impacts. Uh, and can you repeat the second question? I kind of got carried away with the science. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, there's a follow up to this about when these locations would be inundated, like what kind of timelines we're talking about. And then the second broader question was about anti-pollution regulations that are currently in place. Okay, so uh, according to the models by the EPA, if we continue business as usual, um, and there are two scenarios that the EPA calculates. Um, so. Uh, and and it's very technical, but they look at either um, um, half a meter, one meter, one and a half meter, two meter sea level rise. And these are uh, based on the projections. And, and I, I encourage everybody to look at the second national communication. You'll find it in the Kuwait EPA's website. Um, uh, between any time between 2050 to, 20, to um, the end of the century. Um, so if we, if, 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 the, if we continue business as usual, and we don't know what's going to happen with COP, but if we don't reach, uh, uh, the world doesn't agree on halting at 1.5, we can expect to see um, a one meter sea level rise, I would say, beginning from the second half of the, of the century, so 2050 onwards. Um, and then the heat and whatever follows through. So, however, you know, we don't know yet. Like, I mean, these are models. Some, some regions of the world are experiencing it now low island states, some of the east coast of the United States and so on. So um, it's uh, but roughly in the next 30 to 50 years. Um, and in terms of regulations, there is environment uh, protection law in Kuwait. Um, I mean, it, it does follow WHO standards, uh, but they, they do take into effect, uh, impact uh, that Kuwait is a dusty country. So well, that's related to PM 2.5, which is a pollutant that affects respiratory, uh, affects lungs and so on, uh, and cardiovascular diseases. Um, but, you know, it's, um, it's uh, I don't think the compliance is, is there. I don't think the monitoring is up to standard. I don't think the data is up to standard. And uh, um, yeah, I mean, the, the regulations are there, but, um, how are they monitored effectively? Is there a plan to reduce uh, uh, pollutants? Um, no, not yet, really. Yeah. Do you and Kanwal? Go ahead, Dean. I think we probably were about to say the same thing, but go for it. Uh, well, I was just going to say, in terms of the sea level rises on the the second page of the the website, um, from the the scholarly data that the EPA drawed on um, has been shared with us by Mohammed uh, Saleh and um, we visualized uh, that so you can clearly see it uh, on the map um, in, in the, the second section on, on the website that was shared as part of that link. But Kamal, sorry, I just wanted to say that. Yeah, yeah, no, good shot. Um, I was just going to add to what Samia said, and I think it might have been you yourself that said this. <laughs> to us, Amir, that um, as well as, um, yes, the regulations exist, but there is um, questions about uh, whether they are enforced or followed up on um, and monitored adequately, but also that in some cases there isn't, for in terms of industry, there isn't enough incentive to actually meet requirements oh, yeah, to yeah. pay a fee. Yeah. In fact, it's so cheap to pay a fee for violating standards that yeah. there is little incentive to try and meet the kind of expectations. Um, which is another issue that I think one of the urban scholars at Kuwait University brought up with us that there, there do exist kind of policies and regulations, but 
um, perhaps not followed up on or implemented. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, you're right. Uh, that's definitely the case. The implementation is very weak, which is the case with a lot of regulations in Kuwait. But yeah, I mean, there, there is a principle in, in environmental regulations called the polluter pays principle. So, and that's all, it's, it incentivizes companies to reduce pollution because you don't just pay a fine, you pay, you're fined according to the pollution you release. Um, and it's, it's a very effective tool. It's, a, it's applied in the United States, in Europe, everywhere. And it's, 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 um, uh, it's, it's driven uh, highly polluting industries to reduce their emissions. So in, in our law, the, the, if, you, if we get into the environment protection law, it's very punitive law. Um, it's, it's a lot of sticks, not many carrots. It doesn't, it just, um, it's all about enforcement without any incentives to comply. And again, um, the um, the uh, fines or whatever are are not do not reflect the the, the severity of the of the pollution. Plus, um, it's you're immediately fined. You're not given a plan to comply or incentives to comply, uh, and so on. Um, so I mean, we did the entire assessment of the law, and and you know while it's very comprehensive, some of it is a little bit uh, too punitive for the private sector because. Um, or, or, uh, and so because the fines are are not don't reflect the pollution, you find that smaller smaller businesses get get penalized more than the big polluting industries because it's not about the level of pollution. So that that's the a big big gap in the current environmental regulations. Uh, Dean, you want to come in on this, and then well, Kanwar. Kanwar, did you want to follow up on this because it, I was going to shift to to something else. I was just going to add to say that I think in the blog that we wrote to launch the report and in the report itself, we kind of say that there is a almost conflicting approach taken uh, at the official level, which is that there are these measures um, and there is this commitment, but at the same time, there are kind of co contradictory things such as urban planning in Kuwait. Um, I think one of the exports we quote in the report says that uh, um, in spite of all these measures taken and these commitments, like one project alone, and I think it was the ring road development itself does more to damage or is more um, damaging with regards to climate change than a whole host of other measures. So I just wanted to say that one of the things we highlight is this, that there do exist measures, but they're quite often kind of met with contradictory measures. Yeah, absolutely. And and I just also to, to focus back on the report and um, in terms of the experiences of climate change and just the question in terms of, you know, what uh, I hope this report is adding to this conversation is first to bring all of the different scientific studies that have been done on the impact of climate change on Kuwait, because they're often atomized, you know, there, there are the heat scientists and that literature and, and that work on the sea level rises, and it's all dispersed in the hidden academic journals. So I hope that this brings it all together in one place and makes it visible. But secondly, we're also then, the science is very clear on the, on the impact and, and it's very stark. So we also wanted to get out there and understand then, all right, Kuwait is at a range of levels from experts and non-experts, young and older generation, um, citizens and non-citizens and so on to, to, to see as much as possible. Okay, we assume that for the most part, you haven't read this academic literature and, and thing, but are you experiencing climate change? And just to say that from the report, the message is clear that across all these different sectors of society, they are saying that they are experiencing uh, climate change and that that experience does match up quite closely 
to what the scientific literature is showing. So the other final thing to stress is that you know, climate change is clearly not something that's going to impact Kuwait in 50 years. It's uh, impacting the, the population and they are experiencing it in their daily lives right this moment. Thank you. And I do want to, while I'm inundating, inundating you with questions, I do want to take a minute to, to congratulate you on the report and the website because it is fantastic. It's a great resource and you're doing some really important and, and groundbreaking work. So um, thank you for that. I do want to ask one more question. It comes from Michael Mason, director of the Middle East Center at LSE, and he congratulates you as well, and asks, what accounts for the lack of curriculum coverage on climate environmental change in government schools? Um, it suggests significant deficits in science teaching. And since you're saying, you know, the effects are being felt, what, what does account for this um, gap in the curriculum? Conwal, uh, you can start, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have to say, thank you, first of all. Um, for the kind comments, but I have to say I agree. I have, uh, I mean, the same question. It is something that was flagged to us in our youth group, um, because in our broader engagement, as I said, there seems to be a lot of work that's being do done, albeit as Dean said, in very kind of fragmented and maybe ways in which that are quite couched in very technical terms um, and not kind of, um, yeah, publicly available through education systems or popular media. But what the youth um, participants said to us is that the, the way in which it's taught um, is that it's, I mean, they said to us, and I quote, that, that they felt that through the curriculum, they don't care about the question of climate change and that um, the way in which it was taught was a kind of repetitive course throughout their higher, uh, uh, like kind of high school education. So there was no deepening of knowledge as they got older with regards to climate change. Um, in the public curriculum that, I mean, I can just share what they shared with us. I can't speak to why. Um, and then I will say that I wonder what it's like at the university level, because the members of university staff that we did speak to did mention among their students, at least those in art, urban and architecture studies, some engagement with questions of climate change. So I also, I mean, I guess I add to your question, the question um, of how that pans out in higher education in Kuwait. And thank you. Does anyone else want to come in on this? Um, I, I'd also like to add um, that uh, I think this this is definitely a really important point, and um, we're wondering the same thing. Um, at this stage, I think um, we're hoping that our research can kind of expand um, and link up with some of these other conversations. And there is really good work being done in Kuwait um, on the state of uh, public education, what students are in need of, um, why these gaps um, exist. So perhaps this is something that we can pursue in the future. It is definitely an important knowledge gap. Um, I think that um, this generation that was critiquing this is lucky that they do have access to alternatives through social media, through the internet. Um, and educated themselves on that basis. Um, but that still um, doesn't erase the fact that it's absent uh, in their own curriculums. I, I would just also end with a final point that there is um, in the youth focus groups, they, they did touch upon the UAE initiative of Connect with Nature to also stress that it's not merely only those initiatives or activists based in the West, whether Greta Thunberg or, or then Hollywood actors that are making them aware of, of climate change. There, there have been some initiatives, but 
Um, you know, in terms of to, to just answer the the question directly in terms of from what I've understood from our research and engagements on this in terms of what accounts for the lack of curriculum coverage is because the government clearly does not want it there. And I think that, you know, the, the, the youth do want it there. And I think that I hope this report provides an impetus to convince the government of the importance of it being there and to provide uh, support to those within the government because there are those within the government clearly uh, and we've interacted with them that do want the Kuwaiti state uh, to take this issue more seriously and we just hope that this provides uh, support for them to, to do so and to push that agenda forward. Um, can, can I just add one thing as you, as, as um, my colleagues were speaking, you know, in the uh, sustainable development goals, so uh, goal 13 on climate change, there's a specific target of introducing uh, um, environmental and climate change, environmental awareness and climate change subjects in curriculum in, in schools and in universities. And you know, one thing that Kuwait um, responds well to always is, is, like I said, anything to do with international pressure. Um, if it doesn't come from within, sometimes we comply with, um, we, like to, we, we like to have good numbers in the international ratings. So whether it's uh, um, Yale, environmental performance, SDGs, et cetera. So sometimes, you know, the incentive always can come from abroad. Um, this is a very optimistic, uh, um, projection from my part, but uh, I, I do know because we've had this discussion and uh, um, with, with you know, maybe people on a higher level than um, teachers and, you know, uh, uh, academics on the ground, but it's something that, you know, we are trying to, the country is trying to um, uh, harmonize the SDGs with the national development planning. So hopefully this is one of the targets that they that they can achieve, uh, and it, it looks good on paper as a, a, a under climate uh, the climate change target uh, SDG without a lot of mitigation. <laughs> you know? So maybe. <laughs> thank you. Thanks so much for that, and um, thank you for all of your work and for the report. I encourage everyone to have a look at the website. Um, the the work is really impressive. So thank you all for that. And I thank you also to, for our um, interpreter who provided translation throughout the, the event. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, the link for the website for the project is in the chat box. Um, thank you to, to all of the speakers, to everyone for joining us. And I do wanna flag, especially as we're talking about curriculum in Kuwait, we do have another, uh, the next LSE Kuwait program webinar will be at four o'clock UK time on Wednesday, the 8th of December. Um, and it will be with Rana Al-Nakib and Sam Mahias uh, from LSE, uh, Rani Al-Nakib from Gus, talking about youth citizenship identities and participation in Kuwait. And particularly, they're talking about you know, citizenship um, education uh, curricula in Kuwait. So that should be a really another really um, exciting and lively discussion. Um, so hopefully we will see some of you there. And thank you again for all of your work. And I encourage everyone to, to engage with the project moving forward and, and look at the website. So thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks.